0: Hi everyone and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Gernot Wagner about the new book, Geoengineering the Gamble. Stabilizing the world's climates means cutting carbon dioxide pollution. There's no way around it. But what if that's not enough? Wagner explores scenarios of a geoengineered future, offering an inside view of the research already underway and the actions the world must take to guide it in a productive direction. Gernot, yeah, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: So, how are you? How was your week?
1: Uh, this week was a bit crazy, um, because I'm back in New York right now, um, but I just came back from uh, Vienna, Austria, where I'm actually from, Austria at least, originally. Um, there's quite a lot going on in the climate front right now, I can tell. So,
0: can you tell us, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so, uh, so um, oh, other than, actually, and, and even there is... Um, sort of a lot happening as we speak uh, that is um, sort of somewhat completely you know sort of completely new we're sort of hitting these tipping points left and right and the the, the positive ones Um, so for example I have never been able to convince somebody who is in fact you know Paying for my flight right across the Atlantic, which causes you know half a ton of CO2 emissions, right? A ton a round trip, um, a metric ton of CO2, um, to not just right sort of you know pay for the like ten dollars in carbon offsets to plant a tree somewhere, but to go all the way and uh, basically pay for um, taking CO2 back out of thin air, carbon removal, um, which, you know, is possible. It's energetically expensive. It's, it is expensive. It costs a lot of money for good reason. Right. Um, and, um, uh, it's you know hundreds of dollars in addition for the flight. And frankly, you know, very few of us, of course, um, do this sort of thing. And no, carbon offsets are not perfect, far from it, right? They encourage us to fly more, which is all bad, of course. But if one does buy a carbon offset, um, taking it back out and putting it on the ground is, of course, precisely... What needs to happen, sustainable aviation fuels are are part of this um, to, in some sense, you know, have low carbon uh, flights possible. That is very expensive, right? And um, well, in this case, and frankly, only in this case, I convinced somebody uh, to basically, you know, pay for that hundreds of dollars in additional costs for the flight, um, where I sort of said, look, if that doesn't happen, I wouldn't attend this particular engagement. Um, And um, we are now at a point where sort of consciousness is so high, um, sort of socioeconomic tipping points are being passed where it sort of becomes obvious that, yeah, That's precisely what a flight ought to cost. That's precisely what one must do. Uh, So, you know, and it's so late in this climate policy game that it's no longer a choice. Um, We have to do this. Uh, So, um, you know, those are all sort of the positive, the optimistic things, I would say. Uh, And of course, you know, full disclosure, there are, of course, many, many pessimistic uh, many, many reasons for pessimism, right? It is so late. There's so many negative climatic tipping points. There are very, very good reasons, frankly, not to fly, um, mm-hmm. to not emit the additional carbon because, well, climate change is bad. And frankly, what we don't know for the most part makes it much, much worse.
0: Oh, wow. Times are really changing. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, right. In a In a, you know, again right no we're not winning this climate fight right uh no stretch of the imagination right it is very very late in this uh uh you know to finally get emissions down uh but yeah we are passing these positive or we're approaching at least many of these positive socioeconomic tipping points as well
0: so what do you study
1: I'm a climate economist, um, so I studied uh, climate science, or environmental science, um, policy, and economics, um, and frankly, that was pretty much my undergraduate degree, actually, college degree, I did the same in graduate school, um, political economy. And um, I've, frankly, been doing this ever since. And it's been, I guess, 20 years by now.
0: And how you did you get interested in studying climate?
1: Well, <laughs> I guess. Of you know, every every teenager I guess right I mean okay so by now right so of course there is sort of many more a much bigger movement fortunately in this direction right Fridays for future and so on um so you know when I was a teenager in the 90s right so uh, no right that was not you know there were no there were no Friday school protests right there was no Greta Thunberg right none of this um but uh, in some sense you know, even back then, uh, that was sort of my most, uh, frankly, the, the topic I was most interested in, right, the, you know, the fairly big problem out there, even at that time already recognized as such. Um, and, uh yeah, in some sense, I've done nothing else ever since. I've always, um, I guess, back then, uh, very often it wasn't called climate economics; it was called environmental economics. So you studied broader environmental topics as well. And of course, you know, they're still important, right? We must not ignore them either. But frankly, it's become increasingly clear that yes, climate is in fact a much bigger. Uh, much more important topic than frankly, you know, had been recognized and, you know, in many ways is still being recognized as such. Um, um, We must do much more than we currently do.
0: And during your career journey, did you have very supportive mentors, for example? And how was uh, the whole sort of uh, community around these topics?
1: Uh, So um, I guess... Uh, you know, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Okay, so, so for, you know, I'm not that old, so <laughs> I've been, you know, I I graduated from college in 2002, right? So 20 years. Um, but so during those 20 years, um, uh, yeah, 10, 20 years ago, it it there were, uh, especially maybe especially in the business community. Um, yes, there, You know, this this topic was always out there, but it was never, you know, the core. It was never sort of the most important thing, right? Like the the the, the CEO priority here, right? Um, and uh, frankly, that has changed quite a bit. Uh, you know, now when the CEO of Accenture. A company, by the way, with five hundred thousand employees, um, you know, which basically got its start and uh, grew because of digitalization and outsourcing and so on. So, you know, when you ask the CEO of Accenture now what's the big topic in the next ten years, she will tell you sustainability. She will tell you, you know, climate, helping our clients and finding new clients and helping them. Um, decarbonize their operation, uh, get ready for this transition or for the matter, engage, truly engage in this transition to net zero emissions and you know do this sooner rather than later, cut carbon um, as much as we can as fast as we can. Um, and no, it's not just up to the business community, of course. It takes policy. It takes much, much more than that. But yes, sort of the, the difference in conversations is certainly a big part of uh, what I would call guarded optimism that, uh, that we are moving in this direction, in the right direction. Not fast enough. Of course not. Um, but still.
0: And what would you say to students who might be interested in uh, really studying this uh, area?
1: Well, I mean, okay, so I'm somewhat biased here, but uh, it is certainly the most exciting, um, uh, the, the most exciting overall topic with which um, uh, one can engage, right? And then there are, of course, lots and lots of different Angles, right? So whether you are, uh, you know, in college, uh, in sort of a liberal arts degree, looking at lots and lots of different, um, uh, looking at what topics through lots of different lenses. Well, this is the sort of topic that lends itself to that. And you, if you're in business school, you know, engineering, uh, uh, economics, uh, law, any one of these topics, yes, there is a. This, this sort of climate always looming in the background. And of course, it must not be in the background, right? It's, it's the sort of topic that um, has lots and lots of interesting questions. And of course, is in need of, uh, of, of good answers in all sorts of dimensions, from all sorts of different angles. So I, I would certainly say, you know, if, if, if you choose a topic to focus on, um, this may well be... The one uh, there should be uh, could be the one topic um, to focus on for your studies.
0: Nice sold. <laughs> so your latest book is geoengineering: the gamble. So how did you come to writing it?
1: Um, so, um, frankly, uh, geoengineering, um, which often means different things to different people, but for me, it's mostly solar geoengineering, um, solar radiation management. It's basically attempting to create an artificial sun shield for the planet, right? Sort of cool the planet, lower temperatures, global average temperatures uh, through deliberate large-scale intervention. Is uh, like this topic is certainly a very, very uncomfortable topic, right? It is not, it, 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 frankly, it's not a solution to climate change. Let's start with that. It is not the sort of thing you should be contemplating doing if it comes to addressing the root cause of climate change, because it's not addressing the root causes of climate change it's a band-aid it's a chemotherapy it's a whatever it's a it's a it's the whatever medical analogy you want to use it's the sort of thing that you may want to consider and i would certainly argue i do argue in the book that we should be doing the research to shed light on this important topic um but it is not the first line of defense Far, far from it, right? Which makes it, it makes it a very uncomfortable topic, right? Because every minute you and I now talk about uh, geoengineering, well, we don't spend it on cutting CO2 emissions in the first place. We don't talk Mm -hmm. about heat pumps and induction stoves and how important it is to cut, you know, the gas line to your home and to insulate and to electrify and to do all sorts of other things, to put the solar panel on the roof, to to do all sorts of other things that are crucial, crucial parts of um, climate policy of cutting CO2 emissions. Um, Solar geoengineering is the sort of topic that, Yes, we should study it more now. Um, It may well be relevant, very relevant, all too relevant, um, sooner rather than later. Um, But yeah, we are very much at the stage where the name of the game is, let's make sure we study it so we understand it as a potential intervention to lower global average temperatures rather than something where right, I, I i would want to be seen as anything uh close to sort of an advocate that's know uh, who says oh we should be doing this now
0: all right so let's delve into some of this exciting science that you cover in your book so you already touched upon it a little bit so can you explain a bit more what exactly does geoengineering means in, ter- in practical terms
1: so okay so uh, i guess the most down-to-earth version of sort of trying to explain um, solar geoengineering, um, uh, you know, the planet is to look at, uh, to, uh, to call it um, what often is, is being covered sort of in middle school, high school science, um, looking at albedo, looking at how brighter surfaces Surfaces that have a higher albedo that are white reflect more light back into space and therefore cool what is underneath. Right. So, the reason why you know your t shirt in the summer is often white and your winter coat is black is because the darker a particular surface is, the more energy it. Um, Uh, uh, it keeps, um, and the warmer, what is underneath, Um, the warmer the surface itself. Um, Why uh, why do we wear white between Memorial and Labor Day? Uh, Well, because it cools what is underneath, right? Okay, so albedo effect is sort of the principle behind Solar geoengineering. Now, of course, solar geoengineering is not as innocuous as you wearing a white t shirt in the summer, right? Or a winter coat in the, the winter, right? It's the planetary version of this. And of course, you know, that comes with lots of potential risks. Um, it also, of course, has a much, much larger impact, right? So, brightening surfaces in a big way, actually, the, the sort of the urban version is, or the surface version, if you will, is um, painting roofs white. Cools the house below, right? Or pa- painting surfaces, painting, sort of having uh, lighter, brighter streets instead of, you know, black tar, um, having those surfaces be white even, uh, well, reflects light, energy back into space and cools the local climate, mm-hmm. right? So sort of the urban version, the city version, if you will, is, you know, paint a whole bunch of roofs white and you address the, the urban heat island effect, How cities are often warmer in the summer uh, or any time of the year um, than the surrounding countryside um, is um, called the heat island effect. Well, uh, painting roofs white uh, might be able to address that. Now, again, this is sort of the terrestrial version, if you will, Um, so solar geoengineering often or the most prominent example of solar geoengineering is stratospheric aerosols tiny reflective particles deliberately introduced introduced in the stratosphere like 20 plus kilometers up so well be beyond where current planes fly for example um but uh to do so basically in an attempt to you know lower global average temperatures. Now, how do we know this works? Well, um, volcanoes have been doing it forever. Uh, So when Mount Pinatubo erupts in the Philippines, in 1991, Global average temperatures within like six months or so um, decrease, in that case, decreased by around half a degree centigrade and stayed that way for about a year. Uh, so the following year, global average temperatures in 1992, global average temperatures were about half a degree centigrade lower than what they would have been without this volcanic eruption in the Philippines in 91. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the, the deliberate version here would certainly not include exploding volcanoes. Of course not. Um, but the principle on the planetary scale is very similar.
0: So what kind of particles would that be if they were man- man-made?
1: Um, okay, so the volcanic version is um, sulfur, sulfur dioxide. Um, uh, released into the um the stratosphere in this case so not every volcano by the way cools the planet this way um only major volcanic eruptions would lead to this effect um uh if they were in fact you know man-made human-made right artificial um of course we don't have to step stop with um the natural analog here um it would be possible to conceive of other options um so actually um one option often um, mentioned in this context, largely because it does have could have potential other positive um, properties uh, is uh, calcium carbonate, limestone, um, sort of the, the stuff that's in your toothpaste or, you know rocks, limestone, um, which, you know, sounds a lot more innocuous than uh, sulfur dioxide. Uh, It may also come with its own risks, of course, right? So once again, the name of the game here is to study it, not to talk about deployment, not to talk about actually doing it, but to, you know, to study what it might, um, uh, what it might imply to do this. Um, But uh, yes, so it does not have to be the sort of substance that volcanoes release into the stratosphere, it could, in fact, uh, involve other, um, not necessarily man-made substances, but uh, still other, um, other particles.
0: So what kind of risks can there be? Uh,
1: many. <laughs> so <laughs> frankly, um, OK, so first of all, um, when you look at this topic, um, It is, um, uh, it's very uncomfortable. Frankly, most uncomfortable for those of us who actually talk about it, right, to do so. um, Because yes, those ideas are, can be, and certainly often are taken out of context.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, So maybe um, one of the biggest risks Has nothing to do with any potential physical risks, which are actually fairly limited, right? Just to be clear, right? So, yeah, volcanoes have other nasty side effects. But, you know, in this case, we're not talking about a volcanic eruption like Mount Pinatubo, which, you know, did kill uh, a a few hundred people in the Philippines because it was a major volcanic eruption, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, um, the physical risks of basically getting Radiative forcing, getting the impact of uh, you know the sun's rays on the Earth's surface, getting that down a tiny, tiny bit, um, lowering global average temperatures. Uh, the sort of broader physical risks are actually fairly limited, in the sense that um, you know sort of the, the the raw benefits of lowering global average temperatures vastly, vastly exceed the costs of doing so. Yes, there are costs. And I'm not just talking about sort of the narrow engineering costs of you know, designing uh, a, a sort of a plane that doesn't exist yet uh, with a sort of large fuselage and massive winds- wingspan that is would be able to deliver any of these substances into the stratosphere. Uh, no, it's sort of the broader costs here, right? Um, to, for monitoring, for uh, um, for actually setting up a system like this. And then yes, the sort of the potential physical cost as well. Still, the benefits far outweigh the cost as far as we know right now, as far as science knows right now. What's the risk then? What's the real risk? To me, I would say the real risk here has nothing, has very little to do with these physical impacts. The real risk is that We, society, vested interest, politicians, use this topic, use solar geoengineering as yet another excuse not to cut CO2 emissions in the first place. Right? Basically, um, yet again, um, um, yet again, we have a topic where Um, it's pretty clear who would be the vested interest right who would be most interested in pointing to this possibility this technology potential technology and say hey solution found we don't need to do anything else right here's a techno fix that will fix it all so we don't need to do anything else um That would be, frankly, uh, well, it would be a mistake. Just to be clear, it would be wrong. It is not a solution to climate change. Um, And frankly, it would be very easy to see how this sort of topic could be taken out of context, would be taken out of context to achieve this.
0: That is really interesting, um, the way you said earlier, that uh, solar engineering can be thought of as a band-aid rather than the full- sort of solution to the climate crisis. So in, in what um, scenarios can we think of solar engineering as a part of our efforts? Uh,
1: so ideally, and to be clear, this is maybe the one too rational view here. It, I certainly presented us that in my book um, is um, to have solar engineering be part of actually what you might call sort of the world's most rational approach to climate change. And of course, the reason right, why we are here, why climate is still a problem, of course, is because we are not approaching this any clo- anywhere close to rationally. Um, first of all, the big question is, right, who the we is in this case, right? You and I might come up with the most rational thing to do here, but of course, you know, that's not how the world runs, turns out. Um, but in this world, in this scenario, Um, of us, you know, very, very quickly getting around to doing just the right things, cutting CO2 emissions, adapting to climate change, um, removing carbon from the atmosphere to go back closer to pre-industrial levels, right? Doing all of that. Yeah, solar geoengineering may well play a role, a small role, but a role nonetheless, in helping mitigate, helping decrease the total impact uh, that uh, humans have had on the world's climate and to do so temporarily, right? So if eventually if the goal is to get CO2 concentrations and other greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere back to where they were pre-industrial levels, um, then you know at that stage, right? Solar geoengineering is no longer needed, right? We don't we don't want to, right? Lower global average temperatures beyond where they had been in this sort of amazing ten thousand year span or so of human civilization, where we've seen amazingly stable climates um, conducive to the sort of human development we have seen, human flourishment. Um, So solar geoengineering, in this very rational scenario, might come in as part of a balanced, broad climate policy portfolio, and basically then, you know, sooner rather than later go away, no longer needed, thank you very much. Um, Now, the way I described it, hopefully, (laughs) came across as, look, the world just isn't run this way. Right We can't hope for solar engineering to be used in this very, very rational way, uh, which of course immediately raises the question of, you know, how does the world look? How mm-hmm. is the world run? Um, what could we do to um, uh, address some of the the real world um, questions through, a possible addition of solar geoengineering to our climate policy toolkit.
0: So, most of us think of solar geoengineering as a truly global endeavor. So if you release particles in one place, they're quite likely to be carried through the atmosphere to different places on Earth. So can it work more on a local level as well? Um,
1: so- I would be very cautious here and would tend to say that uh, no, right? I mean, the very local version, right, where you use the same principle and sort of try to try to cool your home by painting the roof white. Yes, of course, that can certainly work. Uh, and frankly, should be part of our... Um, approach to how we address climate change. Um, The sort of local targeted intervention that changes local climates, you know, sort of in a broader way. um, But, uh, you know, well beyond your own home or your own city, I think is uh, much more difficult. Now, there is some research happening there, too. So, um, for example, there's a, a potential idea called marine cloud brightening which is as the name suggests, uh, brightening of marine clouds. Um, about 10% so of the planet is covered by these clouds. Um, ship tracks actually, right? uh, sort of the, the sort of emissions coming out of uh, uh, you know, major ships crossing, crisscrossing the oceans, uh, also artificially generates some of these clouds. Um, and yes, those clouds have a cooling effect on the local climate, and you know, one of the questions is: okay, maybe we can brighten these clouds to reflect even more sunlight back. What might that do? Um, uh, there's some research ideas around the Great Barrier Reef, right? So you have uh, many of the coral reefs, right, being very much affected by climate change—not just temperatures, by the way, but ocean acidification as well. Um, okay, so what about a targeted intervention? brightening marine clouds right above the barrier reef to cool sea surface temperature around this particular coral reef. Um, Honestly, I don't think that um, that is a scalable idea. Uh, But frankly, there too, you know, just because of my opinion doesn't mean we shouldn't be studying this topic, shouldn't frankly try everything um, to, in fact, save, help save the barrier reef. Um, And yes, a more local version, marine cloud brightening in this case, may well be part of um, uh, this solution, right? So that's sort of the intermediate step. It's not as global as... um, stratospheric aerosols uh, at a truly global level, it's certainly not as local as your sort of local intervention painting roofs, right?
0: So what kind of experiments have there been performed, perhaps on a slightly smaller scale rather than going global?
1: Um, Frankly, most, the vast, vast majority of the research on solar geoengineering is either in computers, that's the vast majority, or some studies have been done in labs. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vast, vast majority of those, you know, computer model runs—it's it's basically climate model runs, right? Which actually, what, which what makes me so comfortable with the fundamental conclusions coming out of those um, studies is that it's basically the same models that tell us that climate change is happening in the first place, and what the implications are, right? So. How high temperatures will rise and so on. That he, those exact same models, that exact same mm-hmm. knowledge when applied to solar geoengineering model runs tells us that, yeah, there is the potential for solar geoengineering to in fact do some good. Um, uh, it would Lower global average temperatures; it would bring temperatures closer to uh, pre-industrial levels, and it would do the same for a whole host of other things that that we care about. So it's not just average temperatures; it's extreme heat days, right? It's temperature extremes, um, it's precipitation, or I guess more specifically, precipitation minus evaporation, right? So basically, the water left over. Well, same thing there. Uh, we would, the world would potentially go closer to where it was uh, pre industrial. Now, once again, right, the biggest objection immediately is wait, wouldn't it be better to just cut CO2 emissions? And the short answer is yes, it would. Mm-hmm. Should have done that a long time ago, right? We shouldn't be having this conversation today. We, the, there wouldn't be a need to have this conversation if we had to, you know, started cutting CO2 emissions in the 90s or 80s or, right, sort of uh, 1980s, right? Sort of whenever we um, sort of were sure that yes, adding CO2 causes um, global warming and we are qu- able to quantify the effects and we realize that there are costs and therefore we must pay for these costs when we emit CO2 and if we pay for these costs we emit less CO2. right? So this whole chain, of course, um, you know again, in a rational world, we wouldn't even be having this climate problem. We, you know we would have emitted some CO2 because right it took us a while to get around to realize that um, uh, climate change is in fact a real problem. but frankly, it didn't take us into the 2020s realize that right the sort of the fundamental science was done in the 19th century by the way right mid 1850s we knew that those exist those effects existed uh but of course then we really knew you know mid 20th century um and lots and lots of science has done since been done since then so we have greater much greater confidence now but there was no excuse not to act in the 1990s, for example, 1992, the time of the very first Rio Earth Summit, right? The conversation was very much around sustainability, about uh, ensuring a flourishing future for all. How do you do this? Well, one element, cutting CO2 emissions and doing so quickly. And once again, right, we didn't, We'd go we we, we we didn't follow this path and therefore therefore we have conversations right now even about something as potentially uh, as, as as scary as uh, potential solar geoengineering interventions
0: so let's pretend that we live in semi-perfect world where we started to cut our co2 emissions but we still would like to use some sort of solar engine engineering so who would you? have to engage so in terms of uh, policy for example or public and how would just you would go about to making it come true
1: um well frankly i think you just called it the most important thing is having discussions debates even about the efficacy the pro the risks the opportunities of looking at this particular uh technological intervention um and you know governance is sort of this term of art used I mean frankly to me, governance basically means just having the right kind of conversations, but yes, those should happen, and again, not about deploying solar engineering anything close to at scale now. no, those conversations should be about um how to do the research, doing the research, of course, both sort of the natural scientific research and, of course, social sciences as well, right? What are the broader implications? Um, and frankly, we should also use this opportunity, the need to talk about solar engineering research, for example, as an opportunity to, frankly, engage people about climate change in the first place and the need for climate policy, Right? So yeah, there's this very real fear, what's often called moral hazard, that when you talk about solar engineering, that you detract from the need to cut emissions in the first place. Sure. Well, the inverse may, may hold true as well. The inverse being that um, when you have these conversations, when you talk about solar engineering, some people may well, hopefully wake up to the fact that, wait, (laughs) if serious people are talking about this particular potential technology, maybe there is something to this climate change problem after all, right? So, mere conversation about solar engineering, solar engineering research, may well serve as a wake-up call of sorts, basically telling people, engaging people on this topic and saying, hey we ought to be doing more on this topic and um maybe um doing so could in fact um help us get to somewhat more rational climate policy in the first place
0: So, what would you like to see in the future
1: um frankly more conversation that's a good starting point. Um, now, when I say more conversation, right? So, of course, let's let's put it this way: you know, many, many more, much more conversation, much more engagement on cutting CO two emissions in the first place, on resiliency, on adaptation, on all sorts of different climate aspects. Right? We are not yet doing enough to address climate change, to address global warming. Of course not. Um, And then, yes, also focused on solar geoengineering research now, also some conversations um, that talk about the potential need for that particular technological intervention, and frankly, how scary it is, how many risks there are, how it is not a solution to climate change, and how, therefore, we must cut CO2 emissions much, much more then, frankly, most of us think is in fact necessary.
0: And now, reflecting a little bit on, on, on us as a society. So, how optimistic are you that we will be able to tackle all of these big issues and, uh, and come to our senses, really?
1: <laughs> well, that's sort of the very short version of an answer I would give you, which is it's too late for pessimism. <laughs> Right now, okay, of course, right. Your reaction, of course, was the exact right one, right? So um, you know, it you know, it sounds good in a in a pithy you know interview, maybe, but of course, there is you know, really what it means is it is very very late, right? It is. Um, so um, is it true then that you know we? Um, you know, is it possible to be optimistic because of all it? And frankly, uh, okay, so, you know, I'm by nature an optimist. Um, I think it's good to be optimistic. I think it's good to wake up in the morning and, and look at potential solutions as opposed to first listing all the problems, of course, right? How else to get out of bed in the morning? Um, on the other hand, of course, right, sort of the big problem here is um, that um, – you know, yeah, there are some climate wins, and they are important ones on all sorts of dimensions. There are these positive socioeconomic tipping points, technological tipping points, all sorts of tipping points that we are crossing, and that's good. And then there are the negative ones. Then there are the massive climatic tipping points that are, frankly, extremely costly when left when uh, you know left unaddressed. Right when we don't. Tackle climate change, carbon emissions, um, and you know, there's the the sort of the way of looking at them is that um, looking at those, you know, low probability, high impact events on the one hand, looking at tipping points, potential for crossing these negative tipping points on the other, and so on. All of those put together should must push us in one and only one direction, which is, we have to do much, much more to address climate change than we currently do. And on balance, right, is it then appropriate? Is it good to be optimistic? Um, Well, that's difficult, right? That's uh, sort of, it's very difficult to say that, oh, yeah, look, uh, we are tackling this, we are addressing climate change, we're doing it. We are not. Uh, there are plenty of climate damages already built in. There's a tenth of humanity on the, on the subcontinent, on, in India, currently, over the past few weeks, living through a massive, massive heat wave. Heat waves, frankly, sort of a series of weather events all, of course, related, all correlated and all very much linked to climate change, right? So this is not some future event. Climate change is not some far-off idea here that, you know, oh, it's going to get bad soon. No, it is bad. Right? People are dying as we speak because of climate change. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the pessimistic view, right? So we are certainly failing at solving climate change as we speak. Um, now, are we, in fact, looking toward you know looking into a, at a world where we are going to be doing more in the future, and where that is enabled by newer, better, cheaper technologies, better ways of organizing ourselves as society, individuals realizing that they must do more, governance realizing, businesses realizing, uh, interplay of policy and individual action, and so on. Uh, Yes, a lot more needs to happen there. And frankly, you know, we see some wins um, that do, in fact, um, move in the right direction here, too, of course.
0: Some healthy dose of reality there. (laughs) Um, Go on.
1: Uh, no, sorry. Yes, I just wanted to, you know, uh, the, yes. I mean, it's good to it's good to keep two feet in the real, feet in, on the on the ground here, right? In the real world, um, and actually, right. So it, there's always this sort of um idea of um sort of contrasting sort of the world how it should be, right? What sort of activists would say, uh, hey, this is what we must do in order to solve these problems, and sort of, uh, you know, the world how it is, and frankly, to call one of them one of those reality and the other one, you know, sort of activism. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say like, you know, no, I mean, there, there must be a distinction of course, between, Hey, how things are and how things could or should be, of course. Um, but um, uh, it's also clear that um, uh, you can have both of these ideas in your head at the same time, right? Have two feet In the real world and describe the world as it is um and do so properly right while at the same time have you know well-formed opinions um based on science uh that tell us how the world should be what we as society as politicians policymakers should be doing to move in a direction that, in fact, it creates the greatest well-being for the, you know, the greatest common good here. Um, and yes, addressing climate change is very much part of that equation.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. And especially for, from uh, the public's point of view, just not to get paralyzed into inaction by all of this doom and gloom.
1: Uh, exactly, right? And frankly, that's, you know, that's a key bit too, right? Sort of some of this is a bit of self-preservation, right? Sort of if all you do all day long, right, is worry about the negative tipping points and the negative side effects. I mean, again, that's important, right? And yes, we must recognize that there is a nightmare, a collective nightmare before, you know, we we pursue the dream, right? And sort of look at the positive, the optimistic version. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's the optimistic version that in fact, um, well, makes us want to do make makes us want to get up out of bed in the morning. Makes us, uh, you know, want to act and so on. And it's this optimism—the fact that yes, we can, in fact, address this problem. Right? This is not doom and gloomism, not at all. Um, but yeah, getting that balance right is, of course, important.
0: So, what discoveries in your research for your book, Joe Engineering, surprised
1: you the most? Um. I guess what is often surprising to me is how how many people have very strongly held opinions. And in this case, I would say mostly on the negative side of things, while um, the science, Those hundreds of climate model runs, thousands of climate model runs, hundreds of peer-reviewed papers, looking at the potential for solar geoengineering, actually point to quite a bit of potential. And how then scientists, senior scientists, very good scientists, often say, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you know, I believe the science, sure. And, you know, it's not a question of belief, but, I, you know, I trust the science. While at the same time, frankly, often having sort of fairly knee-jerk reactions that say, oh, but I just don't like it. I would not want to do this. It just sounds like something that we shouldn't touch. It sounds crazy. And actually, you know, I, I, I would agree. It, it sounds nuts. Um, You know, there might be a slight distinction here between nuts and crazy, but let's not get into that particular (laughs) linguistic distinction. But, uh, but yeah, it sounds, it it sounds nuts, right? Like, like, really, uh, like, create an artificial sun shield for the planet, right? Like, sounds nuts. Um, Well, yeah. And that, you know, sort of skepticism is healthy. That reaction is healthy. Absolutely. But um, then, well, we do have a thing called scientific process, right? Where we, we, we do live in a world um, where, you know, at least, you know, not all of us, of course, right? So, you know, look out the window, but um, where those of us engaged in scientific dialogues and, you know, science-based policymaking and so on, frankly, look to the evidence first, the facts, the science, to try to guide the sort of policy conversations that we are having. And when you do that, Solar geoengineering engineering looks perhaps surprisingly good. Now, that should not give us the comfort to say, oh, looks like it's a good idea to do. No, it may not be. Um, There's some very good reasons to believe why it's not. But... It's also clear that we must, in fact, draw this distinction between, frankly, what the natural science, this climate, the climate model runs, and so on, tell us on the one hand, and you know, the broader idea of having solar geoengineering be part of any sort of climate policy portfolio on the other. Yes, of course, there are big differences. Yes, of course, there are many, many, many other things to consider when contemplating um, this potential intervention. Sure. But it doesn't mean that we get to misrepresent the science. It doesn't mean that we get to say, hey, it's a bad idea. Science says so. Because if anything, science says the exact opposite. Um, so, right, again, this is a very, uh, very much a, a difficult conversation to have, mm-hmm. uh, but it is an important one. And it's, an important, it's important enough for us to uh, make clear that there are distinctions between, frankly, how many of us think the world should be, ideally, what we think should happen, versus, yeah, what, frankly, <laughs> what the world thinks should happen right? What uh, the world thinks should happen in the sense of, you know, democracy, right? Uh, What the majority of people want to happen on the one hand um, and on the other, um, what the world thinks should happen in the sense of um, how um, uh, political forces, uh, you know, market forces, right? Sort of fundamental economic forces, right? Wishes and desires of individuals added up. um, How, Um, how they help shape the world. Um, And yeah, right. none of this is easy. None of this is simple. None of this is comfortable often, but having the conversations is in fact crucial.
0: Well, let's hope that uh, the next solar geoengineering project or solution is not going to be like the one in Futurama where they had (laughs) like a dish reflecting sun Oh, uh, into, into the space, and then it, the shield just turned around and focused the, the sun beam <laughs> into one spot, just incinerating everything on the way.
1: Uh, so, uh, yes, I think we can all agree that that would be somewhat unfortunate, and maybe just a tad bit unrealistic, too. <laughs> Let's
0: hope so. Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So, can you tell us, what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project?
1: Um, (laughs) that's a loaded question. Uh, So actually, uh, right now, I'm in the process of transitioning from um, NYU, New York University, where I've been now for, uh, I guess, three years by now, um, to Columbia Business School. Uh, So I've been on leave now from NYU for a semester, uh, but I'm now uh, this summer, this fall, um, permanently moving to Columbia Business School. Um, Now, right, so that may not be such a big deal, right? So, you know, who cares, right? So you go from one university to the other, right? How does that matter? Well, in this case, actually, it does quite a bit in the sense that I've never been in a business school before. I've always worked on at policy school. Okay, why does this matter? Well, because, you know, business schools, for for good reasons, and for better or worse, have um, a very different approach, a very different focus um, um, on how um uh how you look at the world and maybe sort of the most sort of uh dramatic one maybe uh this is sort of my own experience now having taught uh of a very brief course here at Columbia Business School this past semester is sort of your average student interaction. All right. So uh, when you teach a class on climate policy, climate politics, climate economics, climate science, for that matter, um, the vast majority of interactions with students are about the problems. And to be clear, there are many, right? No question. My interactions with students at the business school were uh, the vast majority of them about the solutions. It was basically sort of this optimistic thing about, hey, I. You know, MBA graduate to be have uh, a deep background in real estate, real estate finance, right? So what I've worked on in the past is, um, you know, how how to manage real estate deals. And now I went to business school and I'm taking your class now on climate change, climate policy, the energy transition. And I'm really, really passionate about climate policy really passionate about climate change, really passionate about being part of the solution. And I, because of my background in real estate, would like to use my knowledge, focus on solving this particular piece of the puzzle, sort of the missing link, linking finance and uh, real estate investors and sort of, you know, fixing the sort of contracts that lead to the sort of, you know, excess emissions in the way we, um, you know, run our offices, office buildings, for example. Right. Okay. So, you know, uh, very detailed example, long story, very specific too, but I hope it gives you sort of a sense of the kind of approach that says, you know, no, I'm not going to work on fixing policy in a big way, right? You know, massive problem. And yes, we must do that too, of course. Um, And frankly, you know, policy schools are good at that are doing that, are focused on that. Um, whereas, you know, the business school approach is often much more detailed, much more focused on a specific problem um, and much more solution oriented as well, focused on the specific solution to a specific problem. And, you know, maybe that's where some of my optimism comes, to, comes from as well, right? Which is basically uh, the sort of this worldview that says, yeah, lots and lots of problems out there. But frankly, lots of ve- of young, very engaged people working on the solutions. And uh, yeah, um, you know, moving to a business school as a, as a teacher, as a professor, in this case, um, uh, allows you to engage with, teach students who are very much um, uh, interested in finding, working on, Um, being entrepreneurs in these areas that are basically providing solutions to important problems. And um, yeah, that's, that's exciting. Right? that's that's a big change in, in my case it's an exciting one um, I'd like to think it's a bit, an important one and and in some sense it also sort of foretells a broader story here right not to make too much of my own personal move here but sort of this broader positioning where frankly you know the CEO of Accenture right who I mentioned before right when she says that yeah we might have grown in the past and been very successful because we work on outsourcing and digitalization and hey look the internet all these opportunities right yeah yeah, well, the next decade, sustainability, a full-on focus on decarbonization. Now, you know, is that alone going to solve all the world's problems? Uh, you know, can we trust business leaders to solve massive public policy problems? Of course not. Right? It takes this interplay of um, uh, policy and. Businesses of developing the solutions and technology and individual behavior and, 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 of course. And frankly, policy, of course, is often the ultimate goal here, right? Um, but yes, it is fascinating to watch this broader change in society that, in fact, you know, has business leaders who, who, frankly, right, whose job it is to, to run their business, right? To fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders um, who look toward, look at sustainability, decarbonization, the energy transition, the mobility transition, um, the, the broader topic of addressing climate change as being core to their uh, future endeavors. That's exciting
0: congratulations that sounds amazing (laughs) thank you so what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book
1: um well my name is uh uh uh, unique enough if you just google it i think you'll find quite a lot but uh so gwagner.com is uh is uh where uh my book is my my books are uh and frankly lots and lots of uh public writing uh you know op-eds commentaries essays uh 2000 word essay in new york magazine on how i decarbonized my own apartment and so on um and then of course lots my academic work as well um that's a good place to start
0: excellent well thank you so much for joining me today
1: thanks galina this was fun